Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. We are in our crowdfunding campaign, and this year we're celebrating 10 years of Candleland. That's 10 years of bringing you fascinating stories, providing important political analysis, and our original bread and butter media criticism. We're here for you, and we're not going anywhere as long as you pitch in and support us. We need more of you to support Candleland. Our goal is to get 5,000 new supporters, and time is running out. There are less than two weeks left of our crowdfunding cycle. This is the last time I'm going to ask you on the backbench, so please don't put it off. I have been there. I've been listening to my little podcast and hearing crowdfunding, and I'm in the subway or something, and I'm like, I'll do it later, and then I'm never getting a credit card statement saying I'm supporting the podcast. I need you to do it now. This year, we got to bring people together with our live shows, and I feel like we've started engaging, challenging, and important conversations on local politics in Whitehorse, on Canadian media, television, and film in Vancouver. These are conversations that need to happen and that we hadn't been able to have on the show before. We've also given you thoughtful, grounded analysis about some of the biggest politics stories in Canada outside of the usual political horse race that you'll see on major television networks and the radio. We did an episode on Canada's medical assistance and dying program that was really ahead of the curve of a lot of the stories that we've seen coming out about it. We did coverage on the Roxham Road border crossing, the history of queer and trans rights in Canada, and our marquee event perhaps of the whole year. We got Aaron O'Toole on the show. Like we are doing major stuff on this program. Candleland has, as a network, some really exciting new stuff coming your way. We just launched a brand new special series by journalist Justin Brake. The first episode came out on Monday. But if you're a Candleland supporter, you can listen to all three episodes now. And it's about the concept of how a hit musical Come From Away changed one person's relationship with their family forever. I am genuinely really excited to listen to this show as somebody from Atlantic Canada. Anytime Candleland covers the eastern part of our country, I'm genuinely very excited to hear it. This is the kind of stuff that your money is supporting. Please don't put it off. Newspapers are closing the television doesn't make any money anymore. Like We need listener-supported media in this country to ensure that you actually can know what is going on. If recent news events and the coverage of news events has taught us anything this year, it's that Canadian news coverage really does need a lot of work. So instead of complaining about how bad the news is, which is historically what I've done, quite frankly, why not start trying to make it better? It starts with supporting our work here at Candleland. Go to candleland.com slash join and become a supporter today. Thank you so much to those of you who are already supporters. We really, really appreciate it.
Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and sometimes also international politics. Today on the show, we want to make sense of the past three weeks' worth of news coming out of Gaza and Israel in the backdrop of decades of context, and we want to make sense of the Canadian response to all of it. Joining me on the show this week, we have Emily Nicolas, host of Candelin's Détour and columnist for Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette. Nice to have you back. Thank you. Murtaza Hussein, reporter and podcast host from The Intercept. Welcome to The Backbench. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, we have Ethan Cox, co-founder and senior editor at Ricochet Media. Welcome back. Thank you. Let's get into it. On October 7th, Hamas, a Palestinian militant group, launched an attack on southern Israel, killing an estimated 1,400 people and injuring 4,500 people. Canada unequivocally and in the strongest possible terms condemns these terrorist attacks perpetrated by Hamas. We stand with Israel and reaffirm our support for Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. Just over 200 hostages were taken into Gaza by Hamas. Four of the hostages have since been freed. Qatar has been negotiating the secure release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, but warned that an Israeli invasion of Gaza could jeopardize those efforts. Israel retaliated to the events of October 7th with what the Israeli defense minister called a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, which has killed an estimated 8,000 Palestinians so far as of the time of this recording. It has also displaced more than half of Gaza's population and destroyed much of the civilian infrastructure in the 25-mile-long by 6-mile-wide territory. Then, this past Friday, Israel began a ground offensive. Prior to the ground offensive, Israel knocked out communications in Gaza, cutting off most of 2.3 million people from contact with the outside world. Internet and telecommunications have since been restored in parts of Gaza. In addition, Israel has limited the supply of basic necessities and medicines into Gaza. There have also been intensified army restrictions and Israeli attacks on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories, explains it like this. Under the fog of war, mass displacement of Palestinians has occurred in 1947-49 when 750,000 Palestinians were displaced, made made refugees and never allowed to return. In 1967, when 350,000 Palestinians were displaced, made refugees, many of them anew for the second time and never allowed to return. So, what is happening now, it's targeting millions of Palestinians. So, it would be the largest instance of ethnic cleansing in the history of this tormented land. What Albanese is describing is a time period referred to as the Nakba and Naksa, which resulted in the Israeli capture of 78% of historic Palestine. If you're anything like me, you've probably spent some of the past couple of weeks, or maybe a lot of the past couple of weeks, wondering what Canada's role in all of this is. On the day of Hamas's initial attack on October 7th, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shared the following statement on the matter. He said, quote, Canada strongly condemns the current terrorist attacks against Israel. These acts of violence are completely unacceptable. We stand with Israel and fully support its right to defend itself. Our thoughts are with everyone affected by this. Civilian life must be protected, end quote. 
Trudeau added in several instances that Canada supports Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. Trudeau, along with droves of other government officials and former government officials, including the NDP's Jagmeet Singh and former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, responded to the attack, which took place over Canada's Thanksgiving weekend, in near unison with a stance in full support of Israel. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre speaking on the issue. Israel does have the right to defend itself in accordance with international law, and it has the right to respond just as Canadians would respond if an attack of this type were carried out against our people or on our soil. There will be and there can be no negotiating with Hamas. Hamas can only be destroyed just like President Obama destroyed and assassinated Osama bin Laden. There was no negotiating with bin Laden and there can be no negotiating with Hamas. In the days following Trudeau's initial statement, public outcry began to pour in and calls for peace ensued. This, coupled with the images coming out of Gaza and reports of loss of life resulting from the conflict, shifted some of the messaging that politicians were using. Jagmeet Singh has since called for a ceasefire, while other government officials have acknowledged the need for humanitarian assistance and the upholding of humanitarian law. On October 13th, Trudeau tweeted the following, quote, I spoke with Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority. I condemned Hamas's attack against Israel, discussed the importance of protecting Palestinian and Israeli civilians, and stressed the need to ensure humanitarian access to Palestinian civilians. End quote. He added a day later, quote, Canada is deeply concerned by the dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. Unimpeded humanitarian access is essential to address the urgent needs of civilians. Canada calls for international law, including humanitarian and human rights law, to be respected. End quote. The mixed messaging coming from the government regarding the recent iteration of this conflict has been hard to keep up with. Is this how Canada has always reacted to foreign conflict or even specifically conflict in Israel and the Palestinian territories? What has the role of Canadian foreign policy historically been in these occurrences? We're going to unpack Canada's historic relationship with Palestine and Israel, dissect the federal government's past and present responses to foreign conflict, and get granular with the internal and external political factors that shape Canada's position. Let's get into it. One thing that I've noticed, people do not always seem to be super well-informed on the differences between Gaza and the West Bank, the different political statuses of the two occupied territories in Israel. So, Murtaza, which political parties and groups control these two areas, and what are the different realities of people on the ground in Gaza versus the West Bank? Well, there's three, in fact, uh, areas of historic Israel-Palestine where Palestinians live. The West Bank is in a position where it's governed nominally by a body called the Palestinian Authority, which is viewed by the international community as the legitimate political representatives of the Palestinians in international fora. But in practice, lives of people in the West Bank are controlled by the Israeli military. So the area, you could say, is very, very directly and viscerally under a form of occupation. And obviously the Gaza Strip, is, as you mentioned earlier, is also controlled by the Israeli military in very intense ways, including a blockade, which has existed there for the past decade and a half. There is a population of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel who live inside Israel as well, too. And, you know, they nominally are Israeli citizens and enjoy some of the rights of Israelis as well, too, or many of the rights of Israelis. In Gaza, where this conflict now is taking place, you know, since 2006, since Hamas came to power, the Israeli military has controlled very, very intensely the entry and exit of people from Gaza, entry and exit of goods from Gaza. It's created effectively a lost generation of people who are uh, have their lives at the mercy of the Israeli military. It's really important to understand is the level of despair that had built up in Gaza 
for many, many years before the events of October 7th and are deprived of many of the basics of life, sufficient uh, food and resources, ability to work and uh, leave the territory, very tightly confined place. The Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated places on earth. The majority of people there were actually, you know, they're, they're children, they're legally minors. So you have a whole generation who's grown up not being able to leave this tiny little territory where they have, you know, few jobs, few opportunities for the normal things we take for granted. They're living in a situation of absolute desperation with no particular way out. If you were to ask Israeli political or military officials, you know, how would the blockade on Gaza end? If you asked them this question for many, many years, you wouldn't really get a straight answer. You wouldn't get a particularly clear answer. So people living there, 2.2 million people, have no particular way of knowing how they can get out of the situation at all. So effectively, many people are warning this is a powder keg. It's going to burst at any time. You can't have people living the way they're living indefinitely. It's not a sustainable solution, just practically. And now to see this Israeli military operation be carried out there with what, by all accounts, seems to be very indiscriminate or little discriminating force, it's very harrowing because there are a lot of people living there uh, who've been suffering for many, many years, and now they're effectively defenseless in the face of the most advanced military in the region, backed by the United States. I think one way that people have been trying to understand this situation in a lot of cases is sort of the understanding by analogy and comparing this situation in Gaza now to either other situations of oppression, other situations of war. Emily, do you think that there are any like appropriate analogies like other places in the globe where we can see a similar dynamic to the one that exists between Gaza and Israel either now or historically? Or is this kind of a unique situation that is unlike other things that we've seen before? I think the two concepts that are being used a lot in this conversation that are worth unpacking for our listeners are one, settler colonialism, and two, apartheid. In terms of settler colonialism, I think we need to look at the history of Zionism and the Zionist movement and how it was born in mostly Eastern Europe, late 19th century, and obviously got a, a kick of support after the Holocaust. But basically from the beginning, uh, because it's a European movement developed at a time where Europe was building colonies all over the world, the language of settler colonialism was uh, built into the dream of basically founding Israel ever since the founding of Israel was imagined. And that's the first thing that is worth just naming, put it out there. There's a lot of people who will push back against this lecture of settler colonialism in terms of thinking about Israeli citizens, saying that Jewish people have historical and spiritual connection, linguistic connection with the land of Palestine that goes back for thousands of years. And I personally think that is true. But that is not the question of settler colonialism. Settler colonialism is a political system that you choose to put in place or that you choose to not put in place. And so you can have a conversation about the Jewish connection to the land of Israel that is completely separate from the question of was Israel set up as a settler colonial state? And I think because the two are often mixed together, it creates a very hard context to be having the conversation about the settler colonialism in Israel and the way that it was enforced in terms of pushing people out of the land and the Nakba and the further the occupation of the West Bank by people who literally call themselves settlers and the occupation of the Gaza Strip that is very similar to the settler colonialism system that we had in Canada during the harsher years of the Indian Act 
where he had Indian agent who would control every aspect of the life of people who were not able to get out of reserves on very strictly restricted to those reserves, often starvation policies being used as well here. It's very hard to understand Israel as a Canadian if you don't also understand the history of settler colonialism in Canada. Once you understand your own country's history, you start to completely read differently the arguments that are being thrown around in Israel of saying, you know, this is a great democracy and everything, which is true, just like Canada. And that is the point, just like Canada, right? The other word that's being thrown around a lot is apartheid in drawing connections with the South African regime. A regime in South Africa that was built, by the way, uh, being inspired by the Indian Act in Canada. And so it's all, all everything goes around and comes around. This is an international system of basically a way of understanding nation building is what we're talking about. We're not talking about people. We're talking about institutions and what institutions people chose to put in place. So I want to circle back now to specifically the events of October 7th, what's kind of kicked off this recent round of media discussion, this recent round of Israeli military activity in the Gaza Strip. The event on October 7th was an attack by Hamas in southern Israel. Hamas is the militant group that currently you know, controls Gaza, was elected to power there. Prior to this attack, though, Canada had already been listing Hamas as a terrorist organization since 2002. The labeling of terrorist organization is obviously something that has a specific legal meaning and also connotation in political discourse. So, Ethan, can you contextualize that labeling, I guess, for our listeners? I think it's correct to label Hamas a terrorist organization. I think when we look at Hamas, we have to see it as an absolutist organization, as one that that wants sort of victory or defeat, but isn't interested in negotiated settlement. So that's that's what Hamas is. Hamas is an organization that is a product of a desire for vengeance. I think what we see over and over again in the leadership of Hamas is a desire for retaliation, for revenge, rather than for a positive outcome. And clearly, it's, it's hard to see where that positive outcome comes from. So, you know, I think we have to look at Hamas, though, also in context of the entire situation and of how Israel should be undermining the Palestinian Authority and supporting Hamas because Hamas shares a goal of not having a negotiated peace. And so that's where Israel and Hamas are, are, are these partners of revenge, are these two parties that are not interested really in a negotiated peace. They're interested in the fight. They want to get revenge on each other. They want to avenge the deaths that they attribute to the other side. One thing that's been interesting, just because Hamas is publicly recognized by most parties to be a terrorist organization and therefore worthy of condemnation, has been there's been this conflation in some quarters of any sort of pro-Palestine solidarity action, any sort of protest in support of the liberation of Palestine more generally. This has been being described by some politicians, university administrators, political commentators as the same thing as supporting Hamas or supporting their specific actions. Actions on October 7th. And we just saw in the U.S. the Senate adopted a resolution which condemned pro-Palestine student supporters as having been in solidarity with Hamas. And we've seen that happen here in Canada as well. So, Murtaza, I guess, do you have any thoughts on how this sort of conflation has been playing out? I've seen calls for people who attend pro-Palestine demonstrations to be deported. I've seen calls for the criminalization of any kind of support for terrorism as a result, basically, of these mass protests. 
Yeah, it's been very uh, disturbing and unfortunate to see the conflation of support for Palestinian nationalism with support for Hamas as a particular actor. People have supported Palestinian nationalism, sympathized with it for many, many decades before Hamas even existed. And they will continue, in all likelihood, sympathizing with it after Hamas doesn't exist. I think it's a very emotional time, and people obviously are uh, understandably and rightly very upset about uh, the death taking place on both sides, and including the death that took place on the Israeli side. Many civilians were killed, and there was a understandable emotional reaction to that, which can be sympathized with. But to demonize or falsely characterize all protests as support of Hamas and support of these actions is not true factually. Uh, it's polarizing and dangerous for that reason, for societies to, to make these false attributions. But also, you know, it's giving a benefit to Hamas. It's telling Hamas, look, these millions of people around the world support you. And, you know, despite what they may claim, you are the definitive representative of Palestinian nationalism as recognized by global civil society. Why give them that uh, victory in, in doing that? Because really, it's not a particularly popular group. To the extent that it's in power, you know, there was one election where they lost, they won less than 50% of the population of that time support, mostly in reaction to the extreme corruption of the Palestinian Authority government in Gaza at that time. And there's never been any other election after that. And most people in Gaza are kids. They have no ability to vote. What people are responding to and what they're concerned about is the attempt to potentially liquidate Palestine, you could say, by evicting the people who live there. Uh, as Emily said, about from the territory, uh, cutting the territory in half, things like that, which would make a two-state solution or even a binational state in the future impossible. They're responding to that. So to call, say it's all support of Hamas, it's really, you know, it's very dangerous. And I think that as the initial shock of October 7th have worn off, I think it behooves people to respond to it more rationally and have a more constructive conversation about the subject. Because at the end of the day, Israelis and Palestinians are not going to go anywhere in this territory. People who support Palestinians around the world and likewise people who support Israelis are not going to go anywhere. So can we fairly and accurately characterize each other in a way which could be constructive going forward? I'd hope so, because the only other option is continued conflict uh, towards no end, but more suffering. I noticed this weekend that there were massive protests, hundreds of thousands uh, around the world. And I saw a lot of people on Twitter doing exactly that, typifying that as an expression of support for Hamas. And I think it, it reveals a sort of blindness to history to do that. Because to me, when I see that number of people out there calling for a ceasefire, I see a similar crowd to the one that was out in 2003 to oppose the Iraq war, the one that was out in 2001 even to oppose uh, the, the invasion of Afghanistan, the same historical tradition of opposition to indiscriminate bombing, indiscriminate invasion of civilian areas, regardless of the causal event. I think it's very hard to, to see those crowds, to see those hundreds of people calling for a ceasefire consistent with a long historical tradition and, and call that support for Hamas. I think what's really interesting to see right now is that if we think historically, Canada obviously traditionally has had a role, quote unquote, as a peacemaker, peacekeeper, something that we've liked at least to, to project as our role. We've historically liked to, to present ourselves as, uh, as sort of neutral statesmen, um, people that are interested in finding a just peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we find now in this political moment that even a liberal government in Canada finds it really difficult to call for a ceasefire. 
And I think we need to see that politically as a break with tradition. The reason why we're seeing for the first time under the Trudeau government a revolt by MPs, that there are literally a dozen backbench liberal MPs revolting against this government for the first time, is because it's unwilling to call for a ceasefire. I think that there's this sort of assumption or this forgetting of history that Canada has always had really strong ties with Israel, been sort of unequivocally pro-Israel, you know, has always been abstaining or voting against any sort of resolution at the UN that condemned, uh, you know, Israeli human rights abuses in the Palestinian territories, when that really wasn't true historically. Uh, specifically, what we saw was during the Harper years, a real strengthening of ties with Israel. One interesting thing that happened like during that era was in 2010, there was this sort of I guess, beginning of Israeli apartheid week, which was essentially like my understanding of it is it's like a week where awareness is sort of raised about the concept of Israeli apartheid, where pro-Palestine activists frame, you know, what is going on in Israel as apartheid and try and draw those historical linkages with apartheid in South Africa and draw from that tradition. And in 2010, conservative MP Tim Uppal introduced a motion in the House of Commons, which condemned that movement that equated Israel with the South African apartheid regime. And essentially what ended up happening was some NDP MPs supported that motion, which, again, as you said, Ethan, was a break from tradition of how liberals and how the NDP had traditionally oriented themselves toward Israel. So why do you think Canada recently has been so hesitant to criticize Israel to do things like call for a ceasefire? Well, many people will point to the Harper government, as you're underlining the Harper government took a, a notably pro-Israel approach that was a break from Canadian government policy in the past. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. And so I think we need to see the the change in positioning in Canada through the Harper government also in the context of, of the broader geopolitical world. You know, in the 1990s, there were ostensibly a lot of efforts to negotiate a solution. There was Oslo, there was Camp David, there were all of these ostensible efforts at negotiation. And I think many historians would argue with the assertion that the United States was any kind of an honest broker, but it certainly presented itself as such. And so did the rest of the international community. And there was at least the, the appearance that there was a peace process that could lead to an outcome. And then, you know, of course, we had September 11th, uh, we had the, the invasion of Afghanistan, we had the invasion of Iraq. And I think that that really underlined for many people in U.S. national security circles, the strategic value of Israel as an ally. And so I think we saw a reorientation, certainly in the U.S. and under pressure from, from the Republican Party and people in the United States, but to have a more boisterous pro-Israel policy in the United States and in a lot of ways, we've seen that trickle down to Canada in a watered-down way, and depending on which party's in power. And when Harper was in power, then it was a boisterous defense of Israel that went further than the United States. And when Trudeau's in power, maybe it's a, a restrained one that doesn't go as far as the United States. But it is a trend, and I think that's that's what Murtaza was was getting at before, is that if you're if you're a Palestinian, if you live in Gaza— in the 1990s, you could argue with Hamas and you could say, look, there, there's a peace process. There's a solution. There's a way out of this. I, I don't know what you tell your kids. I don't know what you you argue with Hamas if you're in Gaza now about like, what's the solution? I, I, I It's very hard to see one. And I think that increases the, the doomerism uh, of everybody involved. Well, I get the impression that Canadian... Uh foreign policy is very much uh, dependent or made with a primary eye to domestic political considerations. So I think that, 
you know, effectively, I've seen in many, many areas, not just Israel-Palestine, it looks like Canada's kind of on autopilot when it comes to foreign policy. And that's really uh, sad because, you know, the decline of Canadian influence globally is quite perceptible, whereas some decades ago, you could say that Canada had a relatively independent and uh, scrappy and, you know, punching above its weight of foreign policy. Today, it's very derivative, uh, you know, what they think is going on in America or replicating that or replicating it in even extreme, more extreme form. And, you know, I think that Canada's stance on the conflict today has been rather muted. Canada historically has been foreign po- influential on foreign policy sense for being seen as a kind of a, an honest broker where the U.S. is not, or being seen as a country that people can trust and will deal with others impartially. So when that's abdicated in, the, in you know, just becoming partisan very, very loudly and unapologetically for one side, well, maybe you win some domestic political points, and maybe in certain elections strategically it could be helpful domestically, but you're basically igniting your credibility, you know, in the world, and you're not being seen as a serious power in the world that people can rely on to play that role that other powers may not be able to play. So I think that honestly, you're just seeing the continued long-term decline of Canada's uh, diplomatic and foreign influence. We've seen it recently with a uh, relationship with China. We've seen it recently with relationship with India. The missing part of the puzzles to understand Canadian foreign policy is diaspora politics. And it is the same with Israel. The context that Ethan and Murtaza already explained, the, the one part that's also very important to understand is that when politics in Israel change, it has an impact on political organizing for Israel in the United States and in Canada. Because Netanyahu uh, government is very concerted and have shifted to the right, it has created, for example, a link between evangelist movements in the United States uh, that have been incredibly strong. And there is a, a form of theological dialogue that's been happening in recent years that wasn't going on before that has played a role, for example, in Donald Trump presidency. The APAC of 2023 is not the APAC of the early 2000 in terms of the policy that it has. And the Canadian equivalent of that is CJA, which also has changed. It's the way that it positions itself politically in the last decade, which was already also a sign when that was founded after the collapse of the Canadian Jewish Congress, which was not tied to Israel the way that CJA is. And so that is an evolution of diaspora politics that we need to take into consideration when we talk about Canada's relationship with Israel, because basically what it means is that if you stand quote-unquote, with Israel, it means something different now than it did in 2000 when you had the Camp David negotiation. And the way that it impacts people here in communities is is different. I've seen it as an organizer in Montreal back in 2013 when I was trying to organize with others around the Charter of Quebec values and putting together different religious minorities around the same table. Back in 2013, Muslim and Jews was already very tough, depending on which organization we were talking about. It was tough to avoid the Middle East when you were just trying to fight secularism, secularism bill in Quebec. It got even tougher in the last decade. That is one of the untold reasons why pushing back against Bill 21 right here in Quebec was so hard. Getting people to actually sit around the same table, some aspects of that, was actually really tough because of things that are external to what is uh, Quebec politics. That is something that's really important to understand because the questions of is criticizing Israel 
does it make you anti-Semitic or not and how that has also evolved in the last 20, 25 years. Uh, people's uh, emotions around that has also evolved as the politics of Israel have become more widely criticized. It triggers a lot of intergenerational trauma for people who have learned from a very young age to tie their identity to that country. And so that is something that plays out in terms of even the dynamics within the Liberal Caucus. It plays out between the dynamics in any caucus. It plays out in the dynamics on campuses. It plays out on dynamics everywhere. We need to be able to name that if we want to understand, you know, where and how Canada is positioning itself. All of that is tied to why it is emotionally so fraught to even be talking about Israel and Palestine in this country. So CJ, which Emily brought up, is the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and its pro-Israel lobby organization in Canada. And amidst all of what's been going on in the past couple of weeks, they actually hosted a conference held on October 16th and 17th, the title of which was anti-Semitism, colon, face it, fight it. So at that conference, all major federal party leaders were in attendance. So Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, and Jagmeet Singh. And the reporting basically that we got out of this conference was that this organization was using the conference to push the government to officially recognize anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. And that's kind of the claim that we get is, again, kind of similar to how earlier we were talking about there's this conflation of any sort of pro-Palestine activism is equivalent to support for Hamas. There's this idea of, well, any sort of criticism of the Israeli government and specifically any sort of criticism of the sort of expansionist Zionism that the current is. Israeli government is engaged in is akin to anti-Semitism because it means criticizing Jews. I think that probably all four of us that are on this call would really dispute the idea that that is the same thing, but that is like a, a sort of conflation that's being made. One thing I would like to add is that whatever conversation we're having a month ago about connections within between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are already outdated by now. I think what we're living through, growing through right now is one of those historical moments that, that is going to reshape those conversations. There are such a wealth of political tradition within Judaism, you know, going back, you know, centuries <laughs> and millennia. But even, you know, just the, the 20th century, there was already very intense political debates from the get-go about the creation of Israel and whatnot, and people uh, having lots of very nuanced political positions on that. It's worth noting, I think so many people ignore still that being Jewish is not doesn't mean being from Europe. There were people who've always been living in the Arab world or been living for the, in the Arab world for centuries before the founding of Israel and their relationship with Palestinian and Arab culture is very different from the people who immigrated from Europe or from the United States. There are Ethiopian Jews in Israel. There are Yemenite Jews in Israel. And all of that comes with different political traditions and thought. Here in Canada as well, you have that diversity of political traditions that have led to a very deep history of involvement of Jewish communities and, and the left in North America. And all of that has been sort of um, erased in recent years, as standing with Israel has been meaning more in increasingly and increasingly meaning standing with Benjamin Netanyahu's specific policies. And so I think I'd like just to encourage people to tap into and learn about that diversity of political traditions and thought. And that will, A, help battle anti-Semitism, which is a re really, really real thing and also help you be informed. And I will say this, there is a lot of valid 
criticism of certain positions that have been critical of Israel that have been anti-Semitic. I want to turn now to talking a little bit more specifically about the Canadian response to the October 7th attacks and to Israel's response to those attacks, because we've spoken very generally about Canada's position broadly towards Hamas, towards Israel. Murtaza, I want to turn to you next. What has the Canadian response to the October 7th attacks by Hamas been? And I guess, have you been surprised by it or have you more or less gotten what you would have expected out of Canada's response? You can see they effectively issued a condemnation of the attack and then have expressed support for Israeli retaliation, uh, very much in line with other Five Eyes countries and some of the EU countries as well, too. So Canada, as I said earlier, doesn't really have an independent foreign policy for the most part anymore. It's very predictable and boilerplate. I think one interesting thing is that Justin Trudeau seems to be under pressure from various different diaspora communities in different directions. But as such, he's, you know, kind of maintained uh, what I would say is the safest position that he probably calculated politically, which is just supporting Israel and taking a junior position to whatever the U.S. is doing on the subject. But again, I don't find that Canada's position is that important. I don't find that their position particularly makes any material difference. You know, they're not contributing militarily, as far as we know, in any significant way to the conflict. No one's looking to Canada for guidance ethically or morally at this time because it's abdicated that role some years ago. So I think that their lack of a distinct position is just evident of further decrease in Canada's global influence and importance. And I think that's going to continue uh, absent any course change. One thing I did want to point out, just in terms of Canada's military involvement, there hasn't been any sort of major military involvement, but Canadian Special Forces members have gone to Israel uh, to help Canada's embassy there with contingency planning. Uh, so I believe there's 300 Canadian Armed Forces members that are now in the region uh, and a task force headquartered in Cyprus. So not any sort of significant involvement, but somewhat more than no involvement at all. But generally, yeah, I would agree with the framing that Canada's position on this, Canada's military involvement, Canada's diplomatic involvement... Has has been basically more or less null. You know, Canada has not called for a ceasefire. Canada abstained on the emergency resolution at the UN General Assembly, which called for the immediate, durable, and sustained humanitarian truce uh, in Gaza. What we've also seen, though, is that 33 members of parliament, including some backbench liberals, have signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. We've seen that conservative leader Pierre Poilievre has also sort of pushed back on Justin Trudeau's statements that have been somewhat ambiguous as to whether and in what capacity Canada is going to get involved in this ongoing conflict. Canadians are more or less split on whether the government should do any sort of uh, significant intervention into Israel, whether they should send aid. Uh, but slightly more people believe that the government should not get involved in any kind of way. And it's not exactly split along party lines in the way that you would expect. Liberals actually seem to have the highest level of support for any sort of response. You know, the NDP historically has been quick to call for ceasefires. What do we make of the discussion around ceasefires in Canada? In 2001, there was a vote in Parliament on authorizing Canadian participation in the military mission in Afghanistan. This was in the aftermath of September 11th, and there was a rush to war that we had to, to support our allies and, and participate in this mission. And the only people who voted against that in the House of Commons were 10 NDP MPs. And I think we've seen that over and over again throughout history, that the NDP has been a party that stands resolutely for ceasefires, for pacifism, for all of this. 
And and so I think that's why what happened in the past couple of weeks with Sarah Jama and the Ontario NDP has been so confusing for so many people. I want to start by saying this. I think if we look at Sarah Jama's statement, I, I think she certainly could have referenced the, the Israeli deaths on October 7th. And, and so if people want to criticize her for something, I think that's it. I think it's fair to say that that may have been tone deaf or, or, or what have you. But apart from that, her, her, her statements all along are not anything that I, I, I think anyone could describe as anti-Semitic. But they're using words like apartheid and occupation. And I've done a lot of digging into the Sarajama story. Um, I've talked to a lot of sources in the Ontario NDP and the best understanding that I have of the story is that it came down to an agreement between the leader Merit Stiles and Sarah Jama not to use the words apartheid and occupation in a speech. Sarah Jama went ahead and used those words in the speech and she got kicked out of the party for it. And I understand that those words, uh, you know, especially in, in a North American media context can be kind of scary. But as we kind of touched on earlier, we, we have to remember that Apartheid is the word that's used by the UN. Occupation is the word that's used by the UN. And not only are these the words that are used by the UN, they're the words that are used by international and Israeli human rights organizations. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem. So I think what we saw in the Sarajama incident in the Ontario NDP and what we've seen in general with the NDP shying away from what in any previous conflict would have been an obvious position to take in favor of a ceasefire is really a break with tradition. And that tradition goes back all the way to Tommy Douglas. Prior to the NDP, the CCF have always been a party of, of pacifism, a party that is for ceasefires opposed to bombing of civilians. And it's really disconcerting, I think, for many longtime supporters of that party to see somebody get booted out of the party for sticking with positions that I think are, are, are not only consistent with party history, but after kicking Sarajama out for a conflict that essentially revolved around Sarajama's immediate call for a ceasefire, something senior U.S. diplomats did as well, you then had Merritt Stiles come out several days later and herself call for a ceasefire. So what was that really all about? That was about Sarajama disrespected you? That was about, you know, the specific word choice that she used and you're, you're kicking out a member of provincial parliament because you're micromanaging the words she uses? So it's really an unfortunate situation that I think is going to have really negative political consequences for the NDP, who should be able to focus attention on Doug Ford, who should be able to focus attention on all the terrible things that Doug Ford has done, but have now sort of scored an own goal by uh, by really pissing off a lot of their base. I will just say that the Sarah Jama story is taking the importance that it is because it's becoming a symbol of some, a much broader phenomenon of uh, people fearing of losing their job and or not being hired and or being uh, scolded for talking about Palestine. That has been going on for a really long time. You know, now the most important thing that I think that people who are interested in bringing an end to this conflict can do is to push for not just a ceasefire, but thereafter significant political resources committed to uh, effectuating a lasting and durable political solution between Israelis and Palestinians. I think that one thing that these terrible events have shown is that the strategy of ignoring this problem, ignoring the plight and the continued uh, disenfranchisement of the Palestinian people is not a solution. Uh, this is not going to make it go away. And other attempts that the U.S. and Israeli government have done to go around the issue by making peace deals or arms deals with other countries in the region as a substitute for dealing with the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, has shown to be a dead end. As we see, it has global impacts when there's 
extreme violence in Israel and Palestine. The whole world feels it. The politics of the entire world and culture of the entire world is affected, including in Canada. So it really behooves uh, Western leaders to take this seriously, to put an end to this conflict, and if need be, impose a mutually acceptable solution on Israelis and Palestinians that brings the fighting to an end and ensures that everyone's rights and freedoms are respected uh, going forward. Until that happens, until they take it seriously and stop treating it as an extension of domestic politics or letting domestic political corruption influence their stance on the issue and until they learn to act as genuinely impartial parties who can see this clear-headedly and put an end to it using political means, it's going to continue. It's going to continue impacting our own politics in a very, very negative way for many years to come. I mean, who else could I quote but uh, Martin Luther King Jr.? saying true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. When people call for a ceasefire, they're calling for the most urgent building block towards peace, but it's not actually peace. We need to start there. Uh, but the road towards peace is much longer and complicated. On that note, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when daylight savings time will unfortunately have ended and I will not be leaving my house after 6 p.m. unless you pry me out with one of those vaudeville hooks. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matea Roach. Emily, where can people find you? They can find me on Detour uh, every other Saturday on Canada Land. Uh, they can find me in my column in Le Devoir. And also do a little bit of political commentary, Radio Canada, CBC. You can watch me there. Ethan, where can people find you? They can check out ricochet.media on the World Wide Web and, and follow us on different social platforms. And you can find me on what still is Twitter in my mind at Ethan Cox MTL. And Murtaza, where can people find you? Yeah, you can read me on uh, theintercept.com, also the podcast Intercepted. Also on Twitter, as Ethan said, at uh, Mazem Hussein. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrieh with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. 
So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.